0: This is the podcast version of the YouTube series, From Here to the Stars, which is created by the Interstellar Research Group. I am your host, Stephen Ewan Cobb. Our guest today is Dr. Angel Tanner, an associate professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Mississippi State University. Her research focuses on multiple methods of detecting extrasolar planets. Other people I I have interviewed for this uh, video series have talked about propulsion or life support, but your field is exoplanets, literally the places around other stars that we could go. So, uh, let's see, you have been involved with both the Kepler and Recon's research teams, so if you would, uh, describe a little bit about your work with those
1: things. Oh, with Kepler and Recon's? That was (laughs) a while ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, so uh, whenever I was uh, a postdoc and a little bit into my my uh, faculty position here at Mississippi State, I was a Kepler participating scientist and uh, we were trying to unsuccessfully uh, use Kepler data to try to find uh, planets using astrometry. So the Kepler program it finds planets using the transit method where the planet goes in front of the star and uh, you look at the dip of the light curve as the planet goes in front of the star. but the the transit method is, uh, sorry, the the astrometric method is actually the method of finding planets that we thought we'd be using um, in the first place. In fact, in, uh, of course, Carl Sagan's Cosmos series was a big influence for me to get into astronomy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember watching on, in the actual video, um, him talking about looking for planets around other stars, and he used astrometry as an example. So with astrometry, you're looking for the planet by watching the star move around on the plane of the sky. You don't see the planet, but you see the gravitational tug of the planet as it wobbles the star around. Um, And that's what astrometry is, is you get a whole bunch of precise positional data, and you look to see if you can see uh, the planet astrometrically. And the Kepler data, unfortunately, had some systematic issues with it, the pixels for the Kepler data are huge. They were 4 arc seconds in size, which is uh, almost as big as my entire PhD thesis field of view, uh, which was the galactic center. So, uh, yeah, so we, we tried for a while to get the, the Kepler data to get some astrometry, but uh, the systematics were too great, so we couldn't quite figure it out. Hmm. Uh, and recons, I think I think if we do discover a planet astrometrically, the RECONS group definitely probably might have um, the data. They're doing astrometry with ground-based telescopes, and they're like the astrometry experts. Um, So there's been no planet yet announced that discovered with astrometry, but there have been multiple planets which have been confirmed with astrometry. So there was just a a research note that came out where um, the group's the group at Texas they're the astrometry experts in Texas Fritz Benedict and Barbara MacArthur Um, they use the fine guidance sensor on Hubble which is celebrating its 30th birthday today Mm -hmm. Um, they use the fine guidance sensor and they know how to get the data from the fine guidance sensor and then they can um, they've gone back and uh, now for the systems that they know that there's a planet around they've got the astrometric measurements of the star and it's nice because that lets them estimate the orbit of the planet a little bit more precisely when they get the astrometry. So they just published a paper where they did it for Proxima Centauri, which has got two planets around it right now that we know of, and they've measured the orbits of one of the planets around Proxima Centauri, which, of course, is the closest planet, the closest star system to us, besides, you know, the sun. So mm-hmm. The Gaia mission is going to probably... Um, mm-hmm. The, Ga- the Gaia mission is going to produce a bunch of planets
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, whenever they, they have all the data. They just have – they've got a few billion stars. Mm-hmm. Um, but once they do, they, they've been releasing all their – there's catalogs and stages. So mm-hmm. right now they're on what they call DR2. Um, and they will be uh, releasing DR3, I think, in the next year uh, if there's no delays with the virus – and uh, some of that might contain some planets. So, and that's an astrometric mission, the Gaia mm-hmm. mission.
0: Are you a fan of space and traveling from planet to planet? Great! If you would like to get your company advertised on our podcast and video series, you can reach out to us by emailing us media at irg.space. The Interstellar Research Group has many sponsor benefits ranging from lunar to intergalactic. Be sure to mention that you would like to get your company promoted in the From Here to the Stars podcast and video series. That email address is media at IRG.space. Media at IRG.space. And be sure to check out our website, IRG.space, for more information. Thank you, and have a stellar day. Okay. I know that one of your focuses is on habitable planets, not just the search for planets in general, but habitable planets. Um, And um, I have a hypothetical question for you. Um, And that is, if we could snap our fingers and suddenly have a spacecraft in orbit around an Earth-like extrasolar planet right now, how how long would it take before we could figure out that it was safe to land on it and begin building homes and businesses, build a civilization, and what tests would we have to run?
1: Oh, well, that's a good question. So with, with your hypothetical, are we assuming today's technology? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so today's technology, whenever I think of that, and I do think of that every once in a while, I usually think, you know, it's more the Star Trek timeline where you've got all the sensors and everything.
0: Yeah, but there's so much fudge factor in that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> um, well, we do, we do a pretty, I mean, you can tell the key, you can tell a lot just from looking at it. You can t- you can see clouds <laughs> and we can do pretty good. Our, um, our imaging on the ground is pretty good. Uh, you know, spy satellite wise. If I think of spy satellites, mm-hmm. they can see down in orbit. They can see down to a, a few. It's never what you think it is because they always keep that part secret. Probably a few inches, at least a foot resolution now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty good to image the geology. So there's that, and um, I think given that we could do the composition of the atmosphere around extrasolar planets right now, um. I bet we could probably do pretty good spectroscopy of the of the of what's in the atmosphere of a planet we were orbiting around it, even with today's technology. Um,
0: With the virus that we're dealing with now, I'm wondering: can we test to say see if this biology is safe or compatible with our own?
1: That's true. So I was thinking about the composition of the atmosphere. Now I'm thinking now you're getting the biology, which I'm I'm horrible at. Okay. Um, If we're trying to look for critters what I call critters of all sizes yeah then I would probably I'd probably send down some robots first mm-hmm. because that that would be harder to t- given you can't even tell even if the virus is in my house right now which I'm sure freaks a lot of people out yeah The microbes the critters the nastiness I would definitely probably make some sort of a biology critter detecting virus mm-hmm. bacteria detecting uh robot i mean anything that's macroscopic hmm can send a robot down to take pictures like mm. you know, that kind of thing
0: so the answer apparently is months and possibly even years even if we were in orbit around it
1: well I don't know about months or years i would hope that even if we could snap our fingers today and do it like <laughs>
0: tomorrow uh-huh.
1: still show up with the right equipment so uh-huh. i think that's the the people that made the equipment. I mean, we did that with Viking. We did uh, some, some very basic chemical tests, mm-hmm. although this not being not right. But even in the 70s, they were thinking about this. What kind of chemistry can you do with Martian soil to mm-hmm. figure out if there's life? Mm-hmm. Um, so all you have to do is grow some things in Petri dishes too. I could imagine that completely being done automated
0: mm-hmm. and that
1: they send up the data. Um, even just based on what we do with Mars now.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me give you another hypothetical question. Um, most people th- who think about going to exoplanets and exploring them firsthand think only about habitable planets. Can, yeah. you, can you make a case for building an orbiting city or many cities around a totally not habitable planet, perhaps for mining resources or, or maybe even skip planets altogether and uh, choose a dangerous star?
1: a danger star i don't know about why would you would like to do that
0: i don't um, mean, i I, saw
1: that I didn't really understand interstellar with having a planet around a black hole that was kind of weird maybe i should read the books <laughs> okay but, uh, <laughs> yeah we had a few we had a few problems with the interstellar black hole planet <laughs> um, it, well there are so building so yeah, with the habitable planets there you, you it's not necessarily just plant the habitable zone uh, we of course are also thinking about planets that could be habitable that aren't in habitable zones and those are moons like the moons of Jupiter mm-hmm. so um, you know we're definitely focusing on Europa and uh, and Titan the moon of Saturn as being places that could have uh, definitely uh, life on them and I think that we're gonna discover some type of uh, microscopic life possibly on those, uh, worlds very soon in the next couple decades uh, so yeah we definitely are not we, we, we focus on the habitable planets because that's sort of a an earth centric thing to do but astronomers are thinking about um, not just the habitable planets uh, NASA tends to focus on habitable stuff because it's a keyword. word they, they like catchy things and narrowing, narrowing things down
0: they, they probably feel that the media likes it because the public likes
1: yeah. it yeah, yeah and, and we've been, uh, there's been a lot of fighting right now um, amongst the community about the whole Earth Earth 2.0 concept, too, that, like, the, a lot of groups, every time there's an Earth-like planet that's discovered, they keep calling it Earth 2.0 because their press office mm-hmm. wants to be exciting. Yeah. Um, a lot of times, uh, the planets aren't even all that, that habitable, but, yeah, so that's kind of going on right now.
0: Mm-hmm. But, what is your What's your take on um, planets that are not like Earth? Say Titan, a planet with a thick atmosphere. It's got gravity enough to have w- liquids, not water, but liquid methane and ethane on the surface. That, to me, you could have life there. Or would that yeah. Does that excite you?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's totally exciting. Because definitely, um, it's going to be very important for us to understand life on different worlds if we're going to start moving out into the stars to figure out what. Different yeah, what range of life you can have and even on this planet the range of life is insane I actually kind of like thinking about the stuff that's at the bottom of the ocean um, And I, I like animals in general. So every time I hear about this new a new Creature that was found in the ocean or even in the jungles that we've never seen before um, You know, we have a lot to learn on this planet and then of course we have I mean, I don't think there's animals walking around Titan or anything. We probably, well, oh, I guess we don't quite have the resolution to see that now. But definitely some microbial life. Mm-hmm. Um, and Europa is really exciting, too. I could imagine possibly uh, running into some mi- microbial life. Or even even some of the cartoons you'll see even suggest small um, animals, like little jellyfish or little marine life, since you know, it's mostly an ocean world. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to know till we see. We'll we go look. Mm-hmm. It's it's exciting. And uh, it'll definitely tell us a lot more about the type of life we might find around other planets. Um, well, um, How many, going back to Earth-like planets,
0: how many Earth-like planets do we estimate there are in our one galaxy, just in our galaxy
1: alone? Yeah, so right now, the, one of the points, that was the main goal of the Kepler mission. hmm Was to estimate. They called it Ada Earth, Um, and uh, one thing that they have concluded is that we think that probably every star in the galaxy has at least one planet. Period, and and it has more than one. And and a lot of systems have more than one planet. Um, So that means, if you think about it, that there's more planets in our galaxy than there are stars, which is kind of insane. Mm Now, Ada Earth is more specifically what you're asking, is how many planets are in, how many Earth-sized planets are in the habitable zone? Um, and ironically, that number is still kind of, uh, vague, because it depends on how you count, and so a lot of the groups have published papers, um, but they've made different assumptions about the properties of the planets and the distributions of the planets, and, um... The numbers have gone anywhere from, I thought, 5% to something like 20%, I think, Mm -hmm. as far as the percent of systems that would have a a habitable planet uh, around. And it depends on the type of the star as well. Uh, So we haven't quite nailed down that number. We're still kind of working on understanding the planetary systems and the physical properties of planetary systems as well.
0: Can I ask you to stick your neck out and give me a lower limit, a lower a lower, a lower limit? Yeah, like a minimum.
1: I, oh, minimum.
0: Minimum estimate.
1: I don't think, I don't think that every star has a habitable planet. That's definitely not true. Um, I, I can't remember the lowest number. I've seen. maybe five percent, maybe okay. maybe two percent. They're gonna be comfortable with two percent.
0: Okay, so two percent out of two hundred million stars, or billion stars rather. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a big number. So my next question is concerning the Fermi Paradox. Um, What are your thoughts on the Fermi Paradox? Do you believe that life is rare or only intelligent life? Or is it only the survivability of technologically intelligent life that is brief?
1: Yeah, I do ponder that.
0: It's a problem. It seems to be a a real problem.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. I... uh... Gosh, I haven't thought about it. I only think about it when I get to that part of my astronomy class. Um, I guess I don't have a strong opinion on the philosophy of the Fermi Paradox. I mean, I always try to say something like, given what's been going on with our civilization, you know, we've nearly managed to kill ourselves a few times. (laughs) And we're slowly killing ourselves with the climate crisis. Um, But I would definitely hope that not all systems would do that not all alien life would do that because there's so many there's so many variables i mean the one thing that i always amazes me is realizing you know we had the um the event that killed the dinosaurs we had that one almost random event yeah of the you know the big rock and I the reason I'm being vague about being an asteroid or a comet sometimes there's st- they're still arguing about a little bit if it was an asteroid or a comet mm-hmm. that uh, that, and that, and that really affected obviously our, our evolution <laughs> so a bit of randomness um but we are, astronomers I'm not really answering the question but astronomers are thinking about the fact that uh, alien life could definitely be at different stages. Of its evolution, and that kind of blows my brain. The fact that there could be life that's been around for a billion years—I was just thinking about that the other day because there was a Star Trek episode that got me thinking about that, which is fun. That's why I love my job. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, I, mean, I guess I'm more—I'm hopeful that there is life, like, intelligent life, or just life in general. I'm very hopeful that there is life on another planet I mean it almost seems like there it can't not be out there um, intelligent life I'm hopeful but I feel like it's less likely hmm. um, even though in my dreams it's definitely there <laughs> 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 a very big I mean again the other the other movies besides of course Star Wars that impacted me were close encounters of the third kind so I was I'm definitely a science fiction fan mm-hmm yeah, I don't have a strong. Uh, a lot of other people do the ph- ph- philosophy behind all that. And I just it's one of the, it's kind. Of, it's like trying to do the the Drake equation. There are just so many variables involved. Mm-hmm. I, I do it to my in my class when I teach the class, but I don't spend too much time trying to narrow it down.
0: When the mysterious black ships arrived, they devastated humanity's peaceful space settlements and obliterated their populations. Earth appears defenseless against the mysterious marauders. Two of humanity's finest starship captains must push themselves to the brink to save humanity from total annihilation by an enemy that will not identify itself or reveal its motives. Together, they will plumb the scientific wells of existence where the primordial knot of space-time may be unraveling. The Space-Time War by Les Johnson and BaneBooks.com let me ask you, if we discover life on another planet, not intelligent, just you know, animal life, plant life, um, and we get a chance to go there and study it up close, what might we l- we learn by comparing their evolution to our own?
1: Oh my goodness, we would learn a lot. Um,
0: would that be exciting for you?
1: <laughs> yeah, I wish I was going to be alive for it. I don't think that's going to be something I'll be around for. Um, yeah, it would be exciting. Again, I'm not a biologist.
0: I haven't given up on Titan. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, Titan we could definitely uh, do. I, I mean, it's all about it's all about initial conditions. I think. Um, uh, what what type of soup do you need to put together? Can you, you know, the one things that the that the biologists slash astrobiologists study here on Earth is where can life exist in various environments here, the extremophiles. And of course, the popular animal right now is the tardigrade that can live in a huge range of temperatures, a huge range of acidity. Uh, it can it can uh, desiccate itself for years and uh, there's the whole thing about it living in a vacuum. Mm. So, you know, here we're studying all these animals that we didn't think we didn't think life could exist here and then we find life. And so the same thing's probably going to be true for any other planet. We didn't think life could exist here in these types of temperatures. But or this type of environment, um, but then life finds a way. Mm-hmm. And a lot of astronomers are thinking about that because there are some of these planets, especially the planets, uh, the habitable planets that orbit M dwarfs or red dwarfs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a concern one that this these planets would be are going to be bathed with a lot of ultraviolet light. Um, which is bad for life, but maybe life could probably exist. And then there's also the chance, uh, that there's a a physically, we think that a lot of these planets might be tidally locked because they're so close to their parent star. And so you're going to end up with a planet in the habitable zone where one side of the planet faces the sun at the whole, all the time, just like the moon. We see one side of the moon as it orbits the earth. Um, and that's, a, that, that's going to be an interesting laboratory to see how life would form. Imagine <laughs> living on a planet where one side's always daylight and the other side's always night. Mm.
0: Um. A, it seems like the temperate zone would always be in the Terminator term region around the and But of course, it would be super windy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a rough life.
1: That was a paper I think they were discussing that, whether or not it would be super windy, and I think they figured out a way it didn't have to be. Yeah, and that was uh that was on a um that was a Star Wars book. So again in science fiction, I read about that in one of the old uh uh yeah, the science fiction folks have covered that. Oh. It was uh, yeah, Lando calrissian was running we he went from Cloud City to running some sort of a facility on a terminator of a tile locked planet. I thought that was kinda cool. Okay. Um,
0: um, I only have a little bit more time with you, so I want to ask you about, um, there are a number of uh, their moons in our solar system that have, they believe they have oceans under the surface, under a crust, uh, rather than under an atmosphere. And so I'd like you to, you know, you weigh in a little bit on what your uh, your feeling are about them. Could there be life in such oceans, even though they're hidden away from the sun?
1: yeah so like europa we think definitely has an ocean underneath the crust so what they think is um it the the that you can have life in those types of oceans in the absence of sunlight because of geological heating so that's um on the earth you have the uh the smokers the geothermal vents mm-hmm. at the in the bottom of the ocean where there's no sunlight there's absolutely no sunlight at these geothermal vents a few uh hundred or thousand feet deep um, and they find the two worms and there's little crabs and little shrimp that hang out around these hydrothermal vents which are and they get their nutrition um, from the chemicals coming out of the hydrothermal vents so a lot of the people that have been studying that have been applying that to places like Europa and Enceladus which could quite possibly have uh, life even though there's no sunlight penetrating through we have that example on the earth
0: okay okay so
1: that's kind of where they're going so i'm hopeful yeah and but we got to figure out a way if we want to go learn about that we need to figure out a way to do that and, and one way that's kind of interesting is that um places like enceladus have geysers and that we've discovered that kind of recently that there's definitely some geysers um the the, the material underneath the water underneath the ocean's getting spewed out and so there's been a lot of now there's all these uh, missions that are going to go fly through the geysers and uh, sample the water that way and see if we can look for signs of life. Oh,
0: so excellent, it's
1: clever, clever ideas.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, one last question. I'm trying to trying to wind down. <laughs> one last question. You mentioned um, the planets that are around uh, dimmer stars uh, that are that may be tidally locked in order to be in the in the habitable zone. Is the uh, heavy doses of UV light is that bad for them because it uh, promotes uh, mutations, or is it because just it's a harsh light for
1: for life? That's well, kind of the same thing. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. the same idea that UV light's not great here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a concern. But then again, we're the, the the same again the uh, the, uh, the the astrobiologists and the astronomers the astronomers are trying to figure out. If the uh, you can have different types of at- planetary atmospheres that can help uh, block out a lot of the UV light mm-hmm. and then um and then the astrobiologists are trying to figure out whether or not life can find a way to get away from it and there was a, a really interesting talk I saw a few months ago by Lisa Kalzenegger where she was talking about again related to the ocean that the way a lot of life escapes UV rays in the o- is, uh, on, on our planet is to live a few feet. Once you get a few feet below the surface of the ocean, uh, the, the water on the ocean blocks out the UV light. Mm. So she was talking about different microorganisms possibly that maybe could exist uh, in the oceans. Or maybe bigger organisms, which every time you'd have a flare from the star... Um, maybe all of these animals could retreat to the lower depths of the ocean to protect itself from the UV light. And and by the way, water is how we're possibly going to protect humans um, as we try to venture out among the stars. Because one of the biggest problems with space travel, especially for long distances, even in our own solar system, is going to be protecting ourselves from cosmic rays um, as we travel out in space. So they're thinking about these types of things.
0: Okay. Well, thank you, Doctor. I sure appreciate you taking the time for the interview. Excellent stuff.
1: Cool. Thank you.
0: That was Dr. Angel Tanner. This has been the podcast version of the YouTube series From Here to the Stars, which is created by the Interstellar Research Group. The IRG is a non-profit organization dedicated to thoroughly exploring the science and engineering that can eventually open up the reality of interstellar travel. Find us online at IRG.space. I have been your host, Stephen Ewan Cobb. If you enjoyed this video, please hit the like button, and you can subscribe to our channel for other such videos. On behalf of all of us here at the Interstellar Research Group, I thank you.